England was about to fall. After decades of the slow erosion of belief in the competency of the state, in the character of the nobles and their willingness to lead their armed forces, in the country's very ability to simply feed itself, after all the twists and turns of the regime of King Ethelred, this was it. This was the end game. A new king was about to arise, literally a king in the north, and the whole country was about to surrender to him. The whole country was about to willingly hand themselves over to a new power. Everywhere, it seems, except one place. One place refused. One place stood defiant and decided to stand firm behind their broken and flawed king, Ethelred. That place was of course, London. For the first time, London was to defy the rest of the country. For the first time, it stood against the rest of England. And for the first time, it was briefly a kingdom unto itself. Hi, my name is Saul, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the 28th chapter of the story of London, The King in the North. So, a secret. The traditional structure to my podcast is always to give a brief recount of recent events from the previous chapters to place everything in perspective for the listeners, as I actually like my each chapter to be kind of standalone. Does that make sense? But with this chapter, I've got a bit of a problem because there is a lot taking place in the story of London right now. Between the years 1010 and 1013 is simply an insane amount of things going down, packed with events and details. So much so, unlike previous chapters where I do try and place stuff into perspective and context, with this one, so where it does stand alone as a chapter unto itself, if you want to pick up the broader context of what's going on, I do suggest you listen to previous episodes, because this ride doesn't stop. Scream if you want to go faster. Here we go. We start in the spring of the year 1010. Thorkil the Tall and the Yom's Vikings, fresh from their defeat against the fleets of London, have decided they would go pick on the rest of the country, which seemed a much easier prospect. What followed then was a year of total carnage. Seriously, it was mayhem. Thorkil the Tall and the Yom's Vikings literally steamroll England, taking on everyone they could and winning. They defeated Thurkettle of East Anglia, the nation's last, best hope for effective resistance outside of London. After that, they defeated everyone who faced them, and they ran rings around the forces of King Ethelred and the English people. Resistance collapsed. It literally became every noble for himself. From behind the strong walls of London, England seemed to be falling apart before the residents' horrified eyes. Across the whole of the south of England, the Yom's Vikings left a trail of burning, 
destruction, desecration and death. Unlike anything seen previously by any Viking force. I mean, not even the great heathen army of old had caused this much destruction. For over a year, the Yom's Vikings just rampaged and looted the country as they wanted. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle describes the situation regarding these Vikings in England at the start of the year 1011 in the following terms. Quote, they had now overrun East Anglia and Essex and Middlesex and Oxfordshire and Cambridgeshire and Hertfordshire and Buckinghamshire and Bedfordshire and half of Huntingdonshire and much of Northamptonshire and to the south of the Thames all Kent and Sussex and Hastings and Surrey and Berkshire and Hampshire and much of Wiltshire all these disasters befell us through bad counsels unquote the Yom's Vikings had even sacked Canterbury capturing the archbishop and holding him for hostage the most important priest in England was now reduced to being an asset for the Vikings the king and his council sent word they'd be willing to pay a Danegale, but Thorkild at all and the Oms Vikings seemed to just be having way too much fun. Negotiations slowed down, they dragged on. And what we'd notice is this Danegeld proved something that had been going on for years. Each successive Danegeld the king was paying out just seemed to be growing. Eventually, a fee was agreed upon. £48,000. This is a staggering amount, larger than any Danegeld ever assembled before. Now, I have to add that some historians have suggested at this point we have to take on board that England actually couldn't afford that much money and that the amount was exaggerated, maybe. I, I'm not going to disagree with this idea. But I will say that in lieu of anything else to measure the actual amounts given, we're just going to use the amounts they stated as a guide. As the year 1012 dawned, the negotiations over. Finally, a truce of sorts settled upon the country. The Oms Vikings basically ceased their operations, awaiting this massive payday. And the king ordered Yildeman Idric Strayona of Mercia to oversee the body of nobles who would gather this vast fortune together. For reasons that I will explain in some detail in a future chapter, the place that was chosen for the gathering of this fortune was London. On the surface, anyway, it was the best place to pick. It was literally the only place in the south that had survived the campaign of the Oms Vikings. Therefore, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us, quote, this year came Alderman Edric and all the oldest councillors of the king, clerk and laity, to London before Easter, which was then on the Ides of April, 
and there they abode over Easter until all the tribute was paid, which was £48,000." London had a front row seat to witness the weeks of bringing this fortune together, the gathering of revenues, the, the minting of new coins. The organising of the Great Dane Guild of 1012 would have been a massive enterprise. And witnessing all of this, we see all the major nobles of England seemingly gathered in London to make sure it was being done right. Meanwhile, Thorkill the Tall and the Yom's Vikings came close to London so as to be able to pick up their monies. They sailed up the Thames, this time because of the truce they were not attacked by London's fleet and set up camp in Greenwich. Here the Viking army waited for their payment. And then something happened. As they waited for their vast ransom from England to just, you know, leave, the Yom's Vikings had another thing they wanted to ransom. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Elphia. He'd been their captive for nearly a year or so, and his capture, as I said, had shocked the whole country. And it was claimed they wanted a figure of about £4,000 on top of the Dane Guild extra, just to secure his release. But Archbishop Ilfia was having none of this. He refused to pay, refused to allow the church to pay, and sent word that he forbade anyone in England to pay for his release. He was insistent no one would pay for his ransom. If God intended him to die, then he would die. This intransigence infuriated the Yom's Vikings. It is said that at a somewhat drunken gathering of the warriors in Greenwich, they had demanded he lift the ban and pay his ransom. When he refused, they began to throw food at him, and then bones, and then bigger bones, and finally huge bones of cattle, and eventually one of the Vikings, just tired of it all, walked over and slammed an axe handle down upon the back of his head. The Archbishop of Canterbury fell dead, killed at the hands of the Vikings. The shockwaves of this echoed around the kingdom. It's clear that the Yom's Vikings knew this was a really big deal, because word got back to London very quickly. And only the next day, quote, the corpse in the morning was carried to London, and the bishops, Ednoth and Elfen and the citizens, received him with all honour, and buried him in St. Paul's Minster, unquote. So we can immediately visualise the scene here. When word arrived of his murder, a ship was sent from London Fleet down the river the couple of miles to the Viking encampment at Greenwich. Here you can imagine the Yom's Vikings and the Londoners would have eyed each other warily. The last time the London Fleet and Yom's Vikings had met, they'd engaged in fighting, and London had come out on top. Based on their success since then, the Scandinavians, I doubt, would have been holding too much resentment towards the Londoners. But certainly any meeting between them would be tinged with the sense that these guys, these Londoners, in all of England, these guys were formidable. The body was handed over, probably with a degree of regret. Not all the Yom's Vikings were pagan, and as we will see, pagan Vikings were not always hostile towards Christianity. And certainly the killing of a valuable hostage would have been seen as bad business. And then, body retrieved. It was taken upriver back towards the city. 
We can imagine that scene, London ready to receive him in all honour. Bells ringing, the fervently Christian Londoners gathering to greet the body. Taken carefully from the ship as it docked in Billingsgate, escorted, probably in a procession led by the Bishop of London, crossing the threshold of Thames Street and into the city proper, I imagine crowds of devout Londoners lining its way, as in solemn devotion they witness the body of the man being carried carefully across the city to St Paul's. He was now of the highest status of any Christian. He was a martyr for Christ. The funeral and burial would probably be as ornate and as grandiose as London could manage, I would imagine, especially as we know that the great and the good of England were in London to organise the Danegale collection. The new tomb of the Archbishop would have fit nicely in near the tombs of St Erkenwald and St Sibai, London's resident St Tombs. The fact that the Anglo-Saxon chronicles say miracles were being credited to him very soon afterwards show quickly that he was on his way to gain the status of sainthood. But the business of state does not pause for such things. Soon after he was buried, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us, quote, The tribute was paid, and the peace oaths were sworn, then dispersed the army as wisely as it had before collected, unquote. The Yom's Vikings finally left, and their grand fleet broke up, and they returned to their native lands. But not all of them did. And what happens next I have seen explained away in various ways because what does happen now is quite extraordinary. Thorkill the Tall stayed behind. Now some have said that based on the account in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Thorkill decided to stay and not leave with his fellow Vikings because he had objected to how Archbishop Elfia had been murdered. The cruelty and evil of the death of that man drove Thorkill to remain behind in England. And I ain't saying that isn't a possibility. But based on the story I've been telling so far, for me the reason for Thorkill staying seems remarkably simple and easy to grasp. Back in the year 995, King Æthelred had had to pay off King Sven Forkbeard of Denmark with a massive Danegeld worth £20,000. But in the process of doing that, Æthelred pulled off a diplomatic flanker. He also paid for Olaf Tryggvason to offer mercenaries to England. Mercenaries he used for years to improve English fighting abilities. To me, it just seems what Æthelred did here was the exactly the same as what he did then. He paid off a massive Viking army, but he hired some groups of them to stay. He'd done it before, it fits his modus operandi, and it just makes sense. But it's worth considering something else. This deal, this arrangement, it was not a small thing. It wasn't just Thorkill and a few lads under his command. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states that, quote, then submitted to the king five and forty of the ships of the enemy and promised him that they would defend this land and he should feed and clothe them, unquote. 
45 ships filled with ex-Yoms Vikings at, say, 60 men per ship. That's over 2,500 Vikings. That's a truly significant force. And even if it's as small as 35 men per ship, we're still talking at over 1,500 former Yoms Vikings now dedicated to defend the land. But notice again, the base unit of organisation, it's ships. These are Vikings after all, and if they were based on ships, Viking crews and a fleet of 45 ships, where would be the one place to base them? Well, I could be very wrong here, but if you think about it, across the entire South, these guys had just raided, murdered, despoiled and plundered. They could hardly expect a warm welcome anywhere. In fact, while the welcome may not have been warm, the one place that probably was not simmering in bilious rage at these Vikings would have been possibly the only place that defied them and confounded them and was maybe the one place that had earned their respect the city and the port of London. So based on everything that went before and what is to come, it is my belief that in the aftermath of three years of devastation and ruin wrought upon England, the Vikings under Thorkill at all would base themselves in London, in Greenwich at their furthest. I believe honestly that upon the streets of London, at least 1,500 former Yom's Vikings would have strode, now charged with the defence of this land. Would they have been treated with hostility or respect back? We do not know. Certainly the murder of the Archbishop of Canterbury would probably be upon everyone's mind, but I wonder if this where the idea of Thorkill at all objecting to the murder comes from. A simple, hey, I never wanted to hurt him, he was a man of God excuse, to differentiate yourself from the guys who just sailed over the horizon with a buttload of people's money, perhaps. Whatever the deal that was made, whatever the technicalities of it and the reaction to it, there is one thing we must understand. It was a big thing. No, seriously, it was. The Vikings under Thorkill were no longer just ex-Vikings. They became known now as the Liesmen, a.k.a. the Men of the Fleet. And they did indeed represent the new fleet of England. Those 45 ships had now become the standing fleet of the kingdom to complement the fleet we know was already based in London. And the London fleet had just proven that without any of the English nobility around to ruin things, they were pretty formidable in their own right. But now they would be working alongside an experienced Thorkill the Tall and other Viking leaders in their force, including a formidable warrior and strategist called Olaf Haraldsson. Oh, this is a game changer. England now had a scary fleet, the one the king had wanted back in 1008. And it showed results. There was peace for 15 months. 15 months of no raid. 15 months of the fear of the force of the Liesmen. England had a fleet. England had a deterrent. So great was this deterrent that, filled as he was with 
righteous pomposity and a furious Christian faith, King Ethelred, when he was not busy celebrating the cult of his murdered older brother, took to calling himself the hammer of the heathens around now. He genuinely seems confident that this, this final diplomatic masterstroke had bought him a few years stability, that the campaign of the Yom's Vikings maybe had been the lowest point of his long reign, but now things were finally going to get better. 15 months is such a short period of time, but it's long enough. Can we remember how long 15 months felt during the lockdowns of COVID? How much 15 months can seem to be the future? This new fleet seemed to promise a new dawn for England. London was now the home of the defence of the realm. I mean, what effect would have that had upon its residents? We probably can never know, but I like to think that it may have inspired them to feel vindicated in their stubborn refusal to ever accept timid surrender. But there seems to have been an unintended side effect of Ethelred hiring Thorkill the Tall, a ripple caused by the impact of that event, a consequence unseen, but when you think about it, inevitable. Yet to understand that, we're going to have to shift our attention back across the North Sea for a few minutes because we need to talk about the King of Denmark. King Sven Forkbeard had a problem. Actually, he had six problems and they were all hitting him at the exact same time. And as the year 1012 ended, Forkbeard, I imagine, gazed out of a window somewhere in Denmark and as he quietly worried about his six problems, he would have realised there was only one possible solution to all of them. To understand the origins of these six problems, we need to get to know Sven Forkbeard a little better. I have, over the previous chapters, described not just his attacks upon England, like his sudden furious attack upon London and subsequent defeat, and not just his fighting against the likes of Olaf Tryggvason, but also, if you can remember, the fight against his father, and before that, his grandfather's involvement in the events surrounding the sons of Harold Fairhair and the sons of Eric Brotherkiller, a.k.a. Eric Bloodaxe. But there have been a few crucial details I left out of the story that I need to explain, as they become really important very quickly. The first and most significant thing is that the dynasty of King Sven Forkbeard was not some old and powerful line of Danish kings. It was new. In fact, it was less than 60 years old. There would have existed here and there across Denmark old men, scarred, grizzled old warriors or wise farmers who would have remembered the time before his dynasty. In fact, if we count Forkbeard's own sons, it was only four generations old. Forkbeard's grandfather, Gorm the Old, had been one of the many regional kings of Denmark, owning a small province there. But he, or his father, had come from elsewhere. Where? Now, without getting lost in a miasma of old Norse sagas of incredible dubiousness, the basic idea behind this family's origin 
is that the Scandinavian version of King Arthur, the mythic figure of Ragnar Lothbrok, had spawned many, many sons, and all his magical sons became famous and founded great dynasties. In fact, at some point you could think that all the high-ranking Norse of the time had Ragnar in their ancestry, so prestigious was his mythical sperm, it seems. Anyway, the sagas say Ragnar had a son called Sigurd, who had a son called Canute, and he invaded this region and took over, and his surviving son was Gorm. Now, that could be entirely made up nonsense, but it would have been made up to just say that Gorm was originally an outsider whose family had taken over that part of Denmark. And then, as we discussed in a previous chapters, Gorm began expanding his holdings, a policy then followed by his son, Harold Bluetooth. Indeed, Gorm and Bluetooth had spent decades slowly and carefully growing the family's holdings and consolidating power. They began expanding authority over their surrounding petty Scandinavian kings and chieftains to the point where Bluetooth was able to declare himself king of all Denmark. What made them so good at this was Gorm and Bluetooth's clever use infrastructure to facilitate this growth in power. Not for them constant raiding and sailing ships around to maintain control. They built ring forts, they developed towns, they closed down other ports and towns, and later Bluetooth used church power to grow his own authority. All of which was designed to erode power from the local elites and consolidate power upon the dynasty. They were good at this. They were brilliant at this. By the mid-980s, the dynasty had grown steadily by being stable, intelligent, and understanding how you could gain power without always having to use violence. And then it all went wrong. And Sven had been the cause of this. For reasons we do not know fully, Sven went to war against his father, and after actual fighting, Forkbeard gained the throne at the expense of his father's life. Forkbeard was now king of Denmark, but it wasn't via the clever gaining of land. His rise in power was via a particularly distasteful regicide. The stain of this act hung over Sven Forkbeard hung over his entire reign. The greatest instability towards the rule of King Forkbeard had all come from King Forkbeard. As I said, the exact reason for Forkbeard's rebellion is not quite known. I know in an earlier chapter, I described the trigger as Bluetooth being Christian and how his forced conversion of the Jarl of Norway had triggered the instability towards him as king and eventually the rebellion against him that Forkbeard took part in. But the traditional explanation that Forkbeard was a pagan and his father was Christian was actually untrue. Yes, contemporary Scandinavians called him a pagan. But to be very precise, the Scandinavian analyst who called him a pagan also considered everyone who didn't subscribe to his personal variation of Christianity to be a pagan, even if they were confirmed in their Christian faith. So it appears that Forkbeard was a Christian the whole time, and religion was not the cause of his rebellion. 
Everyone likes to portray the Vikings as confirmed pagans at odd with Christianity, but really the Scandinavians of this time seem to have held religious views very much recognisable to our own. They were syncretic. The Scandinavians would take elements of their ancestors' faith and mix it with elements of Christianity, say, to suit their needs and personalities. Indeed, there was a ritual called prim signing, which seems to have been a not-quite-a-baptism rite that allowed pagan Scandinavians interact and deal with the Christian world and its priests without having to convert fully, something which they usually did as they got older. So religion, while an easy thing to fixate upon, was probably not the cause of the feud between Bluetooth and Forkbeard. Indeed, it appears as if the cause was Sven's impatience to have power and greed on behalf of the young prince and heir to the throne. And it was this that had caused the stain of his father's regicide to so colour his reign as king. This was probably a peripheral reason why Olaf Tryggvason was able to so successfully claim the title of Norway from under Sven's nose. And it's ultimately why Sven Forkbeard was so very cautious. And this is what we often miss when talking about this king. He was a calculating man. His entire reign was built upon him undoing the damage he had inflicted upon his own dynasty with the death of his father. What mattered most for Sven then was ultimately stability. Maybe not sedate stability in all things, he was after all a Vikinger, but stability in the dynasty, stability in succession, and stability in power. And here is where the events in England were the cause of concern for Sven Forkbeard. See, England was falling apart. The regime of Ethelred had been beset with ineptitude and corruption, incompetence and infighting. The English were an organised people, an effective people. They were able to produce fortunes in wealth and had a fairly ferocious military tradition based on literal generations of fighting the Vikings. But the culture of the ruling class was one of corruption and infighting. The nation was on life support and as such made it such an attractive target for Viking raiders. But that was Forkbeard's problem. He had a problem with Viking raids, you see. Many problems, such as, well, when Vikings returned from raiding England during this era, they were not going back to the now depleted diaspora of the Irish Sea. They were returning to Scandinavia. And when those Danish and Norwegian and Swedish and Baltic laced pirates sailed back to somewhere like Denmark with their booty, this injected a lot of cash into the local economy, none of which was taxed or taxable by the king. Sven did not get his share of the booty. Added to this, this was causing violent changes in local social standings. I mean, a man may leave Denmark, say, where he'd been a farmer or a fisherman, and he could join a Viking crew and sail to England, and then after a couple of years he'd return, and suddenly he'd be loaded. Suddenly he had money and means and an elevated social status, and this would impact upon the existing status quo in a way that the king could not control. 
And if the king tried to control or interfere to restore the status quo or act in any way to curtail the social impact of the newly rich former Vikings upon the status quo, he had to cope with the fact that riches did not just come with wealth, they also bought power. Former Vikings presented a new class of potentially powerful men the king had to cope with. After all, that is exactly what Olaf Tryggvason had just done to him. He was a man who'd appeared to have gone a Viking across the Baltic and Russia and ended up in the Irish diaspora, and he wasn't anything big. But then comes his raid on England, his victory at Malden, and a huge personal Danegeld. That bought Tryggvason wealth, increased social standing, and gained him a second Danegeld, which was then followed closely by him usurping the title of King of Norway, away from Forkbeard. Hmm? It was only a matter of time before Forkbeard would face that situation again. And we'd seen King's Forkbeard try to cope with the pressures of having an easily plundered England twice before. He'd tried to control raiding by running his own raids. In 992, he launched a huge raid against England, and after his initial defeat at London, he'd gained a fortune. And then in 1003, he'd tried it again, he'd done well, but then had to stop due to a famine in England. So it's clear he understood that in order to regulate Viking raids, he had to be involved. But the Yom's Vikings campaign of the year 1010 to 1012 had made a mockery of this. The, the, the Yom Vikings had made off with a Danegeld larger than the one he had gained. And that was after years of devastating the whole of the South for a whole other veritable fortune. No, Forkbeard had to do something else to regulate the Vikingers going to England. His own realm stability needed it. But most of all, above all these other concerns, Forkbeard had a much, much more pressing problem. He had two sons. And that worried him a lot. His eldest was called Harold. He was a chip of the old block, a strong member of the dynasty of Gorm. He was the heir to the throne of Denmark and was raised to run it so. But now coming of age was Sven's second son, Knut. And Knut was a problem. King Forkbeard ultimately wanted to prevent a dynastic feud like the one he himself had caused from being inflicted upon his children and his land. He'd fought too bloody hard to undo the damage of his rebellion, and he'd fought for too damn long to cope with the right, wider repercussions of what he himself had instigated to allow his two sons fall out. He had to give Denmark to Harold, and he had to find somewhere else for Canute to rule. He couldn't just give him Norway, no. He needed somewhere new. And so, as the year 1012 was coming to a close, I imagine Sven Forkbeard gazed out of an imaginary window and counted off his six problems. One, he had two sons, and one of them had no land to inherit. Two, the Viking raids on England were causing staggering profits to be made, but he was getting none of it, and he needed somehow to regulate this Viking business. Three, he needed to curtail the number of newly rich and powerful Vikingers. Four, he needed to 
diminish the chances for his people to go raid and rise in status in a way that he couldn't regulate or control and therefore undermine the authority of the king. And five, he had to cope with Thorkill the Tall, who appeared to encapsulate four of those problems I just described. Thorkill, after all, could only but grow in status, and if we believe the sagas of the Yom's Vikings, he had noble blood in him, and could have returned and used his wealth to carve out his own rival state, exactly like Olaf Tryggvason had done. And even if he didn't do that, problem number six, with Thorkill the Tall now working for King Aethelred, supplying his fleet to the English fleet, well, the last time Aethelred had Scandinavian mercenaries at his command, he'd burned the strongholds of the Norse diaspora of the Irish Sea, and then he had invaded Normandy. With Thorkill working for him, it could conceivably be possible that England could do what they had done to Normandy to Denmark. So problem number six... King Sven Forkbeard needed to deal with England with Thorkill in it. And for me, as he mused about his six problems, Sven Forkbeard seemed to have inevitably come up with a simple but drastic solution to all of them. He had to take England. And, and maybe not all of it. The land had been many separate kingdoms until the rule of the current king's grandfather. The scars of that division were still fresh. Scratch below the surface of England, and you found the Dane law. Scratch below that, and you found the ancient kingdoms. But grabbing a chunk of real estate in England would simply solve his six problems. And so Sven Forkbeard began taking steps to do this. He made sure his eldest boy, Harold, was set up to run Denmark while he was away. He secured for him the arrangements that he would be ready to just take over if anything happened to Sven. He conferred with his teenage son, Knut, and prepared him to come with him to England. This was to establish his inheritance after all. And above all things... Sven understood that while he was fairly sure he was able to match King Aethelred militarily, he could not underestimate him diplomatically. Aethelred had one card up his sleeve Sven needed to cover. Normandy. Duke Richard II of Normandy was Sven's one wildcard. While there was no love lost between the Duke and his brother-in-law the King, the Queen of England was the Duke's sister, and her children were members of the royal household and the Duke's nephews. Sven didn't want Normandy interfering in what he planned to do. So, in what is in many ways the surest sign that Sven Forkbeard intended to stay, according to Norman sources, Forkbeard and Richard II of Normandy negotiated a treaty in secret. The Danish king would be left alone if he invaded England. In the year 1013, his preparations made and ready, King Sven Forkbeard launched his attack upon England. The end game had now begun. Instantly, this campaign was different. 
Sven focuses invasion on the north, not the south. Possibly, as one historian of Red suggested, because he was wary of encountering the forces of Thorkild at all early on. But there's also another very clear reason. All the evidence suggests that Sven was intending to create a state for himself that would be based in the north. That whatever happened, if he held the whole island or just part of the island, his focus would be on the north of England. The traditional power structures that arose in England at this time, built upon the rump of the state of Wessex, they would not be utilised. He was looking to be crowned in York. This would make sense in many ways. The Kingdom of Jorvik had been the Norse-inspired powerhouse of southern Northumbria since Halfdan Whiteshirt had consolidated power within it, all the way through to the unstable regime of Eric Bloodaxe. Yes, many years had passed. But from clerical appointments to the later summoning of the Witan there, in all ways Sven Forkbeard seemed to be given the impression that he would be the king in the north. Whatever the later plans he had in mind, the first order of business was the invasion. Sven had an easy go of it. He set up in Gainsborough and, quote, then soon submitted to him Earl Uhtred and all the Northumbrians and all the people of Lindsay and afterwards the people of the five boroughs and soon after all the army to the north of Watling Street and hostages were given him from each shire when he understood that all the people were subject to him then ordered he that his army should have provisions and horses and he went southward with his main army committing his ships and the hostages to his son Canute unquote. this is spectacular the abject surrender of Uhtred was followed by the surrender of the entire Danelaw. Sven Forkbeard had taken the north of England, including the North Midlands and East Anglia, without a single battle needing to be fought. This is probably beyond his wildest dreams. Despite the 15 months of peace that Aethelred had bought, this was it. The people were just tired. No one seemed to be willing to fight anymore. The endless processions of attacks and failures had just been too much. England was simply surrendering to Sven Forkbeard. And as such, he now left his young son, Canute, in charge at Gainsborough. After all, all of this was going to be his. And marched south to take on the remains of the English kingdom. Yet this collapse of England continued. Everywhere King Sven went, the English forces offered no resistance. They surrendered. They gave him hostages to convince the Danish king they'd be loyal. And so he swept up all before him. And Aethelred, it is clear, that at this exact moment, the king fled to the one place that defied this Danish king of the north still. The one place so stubborn, so intransigent, so defiant and possibly so angry that it seemed like it would never surrender. London. 
Here, Æthelred would make his last stand. Here, he had the mighty walls of the city to defend him. Here, he had this ferocious population who had beaten off Sven Forkbeard before. Here, he had his fleet. Here, he would stand. Once again, Sven Forkbeard was about to try and storm the city. But now, London had extra defences. It wasn't just the London Sin who defeated him last time he was facing. This was the London with Thorkill the Tall within the defenders, and a London which had the king himself within it. The Second Battle of London was about to begin. And annoyingly, that's where I'm going to end this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday for Chapter 29 in the Story of London. As always, there is a rough script available for those who want to read along as well as listen along, which you can find on a link provided here and is hosted on Imja. I'd like to thank you for your kind comments and, and the support from people I've been getting. It's really nice seeing how the podcast is growing. And I do so hope you're enjoying it. I'll see you next week for another chapter in the story of London. Thanks. Thank you.